Welcome to It's the ADHD Friendly Podcast, where we talk all things well-being, personal development, and living our best damn ADHD lives at home and at work. My name is Karen McGill. I'm a certified ADHD life coach, and I'm here to help you do life better. Y'all, did you know that ADHD children on average get more than 20,000 additional pieces of negative feedback than the average neurotypical child before the age of 10. Think about that for a second. What did you hear when you were a kiddo? I know I heard things like, why can't you just pay attention? Why can't you just follow instructions? Why can't you keep your room clean? Why do you keep losing things? I had a big, thick elastic band that wrapped around my head that kept my glasses on my head because I kept losing them. So you could just imagine the level of nerdery that was going on when I was a kid. But you get the point. These comments like, why can't you just try harder, do better, be better? Our well-meaning parents and teachers just wanted the best for us. So they probably didn't realize how those comments would have a lasting impact on us as, oh, like it breaks my heart to think about that because I know they didn't know the impact that that would have on us or any child for that matter, but especially ADHDers who already struggle with not being the norm. So it's not a surprise to me that ADHDers are so prone to negative self-talk, negative thoughts, and rumination. As we grow up, we are used to hearing this feedback from others, so it becomes a part of our identity and who we are. I think I've mentioned before that I couldn't tell time or do fractions when I was a kid, like right up until about the age of 13, I think. I know it may sound inconsequential, but it was a very traumatic thing for me because I was shamed because of it by my family. Like, oh my God, you can't tell time? Why can't you figure out these fractions? So of course, I immediately default to, well, I'm just stupid. And as a result of that acceptance that I just wasn't smart, I skipped school a lot. And as a result of that behavior, I flunked out of high school. No wonder, right? And really when I did, I have to say my parents or my mother at this time, because my father had already passed away, didn't really push me to stay in school because she too didn't see any sort of academic potential in me. So her next thought was get Karen into a structured job where she can make a paycheck. And that led to a whole host of other identity issues that I dealt with. But When you think about all of those negative reinforcements that we got as children and how they developed into our adult identities, you can look at any number of things that you struggle with today, and it might not be that you are not good at the thing. It might just be that you've got a story in your head, and I'll be honest with you, I hear this a lot in my clients who come to me having struggles and roadblocks and an inability to move forward with something. Like literally their nervous systems are triggered to the point where they freeze or flight or fight. And a lot of that, I believe, stems from the negative messages we got as children, which as adults, we grow up to continue those conversations in our heads. Now, back to myself, I did eventually get my act together. I graduated high school at the ripe old age of like, I think I was 21. And then I went on to community college where I got to choose the courses that I was actually interested in. And that's when my teacher started noticing that I had a lot of academic potential. And because they saw academic potential, 
they were able to start changing the narrative for me. I will never forget the completion of my first semester in community college. I had taken what's called a general arts and science program, which is just basically an academic primer to get you into either university or another applied program. I would think I was going to go into property management at the time. Thank God I didn't do that. But anyway, I just finished my first semester of general arts and science. I was around 23 at the time. And I was going from one class to the next. And I ran into one of my professors in a stairwell. Her name was Robin. And she stopped me to ask me what my plans were for the following semester. And I told her that I was going to transfer into the property management program to become a property manager because in my mind, I needed an applied skill to get a job and just move on with life. And I remember her having this reaction of disappointment. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that. And I said, why? And she said, well, you were doing so well in this academic program. I thought it was your intention to go to university. And I remember the expression on my face. I kind of looked at her like she had horns growing out of her head. And I'm like, oh, no, I had no intention of going to university. I'm not that smart. I actually said that. And then she looked at me like I had horns coming out of my head. She's like, Karen, you have so much academic potential. I said, really? You think that I could go to university? She's like, absolutely. I thought university was this ivory tower where all of the smartest people went. And that was a tower with walls that were way too high for me. I was never going to achieve university status. And because of that narrative, I didn't even try. I didn't even entertain the thought, but this was the first moment in that stairwell, having that conversation with my teacher, Robin, where a glimmer of hope was sparked inside of me. And that day changed the trajectory of my life. Because for once, I wasn't having an experience with a teacher where I saw either disappointment on their face or a negative reaction to something I had done. Generally, teachers had always been reprimanding me for my behavior or telling me that I'm not applying myself or something along those lines. And for the first time, I had a teacher shocked that I didn't realize my own academic potential. So while I love and admire teachers, and I think it's one of the most important jobs in the world, and I can understand why they can get frustrated with kids that are underperforming, I also have to say that when you flip that around and you think about it from the kid's perspective, who's constantly getting these pieces of negative feedback, that's all they know. And if that's all they know, that's all they know to be. So when a teacher comes across and sees potential in you that you don't see in yourself, it doesn't have to be a teacher, but anybody who can see potential in you that you don't see yourself, it can change the trajectory of your life. And that absolutely did. So I ended up removing myself from the property management course, going back for another semester of this academic program, which then gave me the ability to apply for university and transfer credits. And by the time I finished that first year of community college and I was entering university, I had wanted to be an environmental lawyer, so I signed up for environmental studies program with the intention of going to law school thereafter, and I ended up not doing any of that for other reasons, but the point is I went from somebody who thought they were basically stupid to starting university with the intention of becoming a lawyer, and that's all because of that teacher, Robin, who was able to flip the script for me and create the possibility of a different narrative. And I think that that's so important if you have children or if you in some way influence children to give them opportunities to see the strengths in themselves. Because once they do, especially ADHD kids, once they see the possibility of something that they can excel at, 
that they're interested in, and that is the caveat, the sky is the limit in terms of what they can do because most of them have all the energy in the world to apply to what is most important to them. So coming back to this idea of negative talk and negative thoughts, that experience changed the narrative for me only slightly. I knew that I was good at some things, but not good at others. And I didn't really know how to siphon that out. I just knew that I had some strengths and some weaknesses. Fast forward to today, post-diagnosis and after going through all of this training in ADHD, I now know that my strengths are born from my interests and my weaknesses are entrenched in the things that I find inherently boring. It's not quite as simple as I had strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others because I think we can all think that way. Like I might be strong in English, but weak in math. And that's exactly the way I thought. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. Let me give you an example. Somebody might say, I'm a good at English or I'm bad at English. I'm a good writer or I'm a poor writer. Whereas I am actually an excellent writer. However, I am extremely poor at grammatics. I'll tell you right now, I don't know what an adjective is or an adverb. I don't even know really what a verb is. A verb is like an action word, right? I know that a noun is a person, place, or thing. That's the only thing I know. I might have like a grade two level of understanding when it comes to grammar. However, I do know how to write grammatically correct sentences. So this is an example of, I know how to do the work, but I couldn't show you how I do the work. I just know how to get to the answer. So I say that because there's a lot of mechanics when it comes to grammar that I find hideously boring and I will never be good at, and I don't care <laughs> because I write well. And the same thing is true of any other area of study. Look at psychology. I was so riveted by psychology. I have two psychology degrees. My undergrad is in psychology, but it's a Bachelor of Arts because if I chose to go the Bachelor of Science route, I would have had to take statistics, which I was hellbent against doing. So I avoided that by doing a Bachelor of Arts. And then when I got to my master's degree in psychology, I had no way around it. I had to do statistics. And it was the hardest thing I think I've ever had to drag myself through, but I did it. I got a hideously low grade, but I passed. So I share that nuance with you because I think it's important in general to understand that. But I also want to parlay this back to negative self-talk. When we think that we're stupid or we think we just can't do anything right or we're not going to try something because we know we're going to fail at it. So we perpetuate a small self, a self that never tries anything, a self that's mired in fear because we have such profound negative thoughts around it. However, if we had the wherewithal to pause in the moment when we were having these negative spirals and break down exactly what we are saying to ourselves, we can then examine whether or not it's true or what parts of it are true and what can we do about that. So for example, let's come back to my issue with grammar. It is true that if you gave me a test right now on sentence structure and where adverbs and all of those different things are supposed to go, I would fail that test miserably because I think I have uh, like a grade two understanding of grammar. However, the first question is, do I care? Absolutely not. But let's just say that there was some life or death reason why I needed to understand the grammatical structure of a sentence. If I had to, I know that I could go out and find somebody who could teach me grammar in a way that I would understand it and be able to comprehend it. It would require that I have a very strong why in order to do that. Like somebody's putting a gun to my head and saying that if you do not learn grammar, I'm going to pull the trigger. 
Without that why, I have absolutely no reason to understand the structure of grammatics. So internally, I can say to myself, you're stupid because you don't understand grammar. Or I can say to myself, I don't understand grammar because I don't care about grammar and it's not relevant to my life. And I'm a really good writer anyway, so what's the big deal? What happens there is that I neutralize a belief. I understand that it's not a moral failing that I don't understand grammar and I don't really care and I have no emotional attachment to it. So on with my day. I know that's a pretty mild example and usually our self-talk can get a lot worse than that. But I use that because we get mired in all or nothing thinking, catastrophizing situations and making things bigger than they actually are. There could be some elements of truth to the negative thoughts that you have. But if you really took a closer look at it, you might just realize that it doesn't matter. We don't all need to be great at all the things. We only need to be great at the things that are important to us, the things that we value, and we know we're going to be great at the things that interest us. And when I think about all of this, it makes me want to give the younger version of myself a big hug because it wasn't her fault that she was failing in so many areas of her life or so she thought she was. It wasn't really anyone's fault. I just slipped through the cracks and faked my way through my entire childhood and adolescence. And I'm going to repeat that. I faked my way through it, pretending to be aware of what was going on, pretending to get it, pretending to understand French and fractions and grammar, pretending to be neurotypical. And I wasn't. So much masking happened in my childhood, and it was driven by external demands. But if I'm being honest, it was also driven by my own negative self-talk. And that's why I think this is such an important topic, especially for ADHDers. Our internal narratives can often be negative for the reasons I just mentioned. And if we don't pay attention to them, our minds will take them as truth. And when that happens, then we end up in the infamous ADHD spin, where we start thinking that our lives are horrible and that we need to burn it all down to the ground and start over again. And sometimes that's the best case scenario. In the worst case, it can end up in addiction, incarceration. At the end of the day, if we leave our internal stories unchecked, then they can derail our lives. So what can we do to combat this negative self-talk? First, we need to recognize when it's happening, which is really hard. I know that, especially in those moments when you're already emotionally dysregulated. And I know you know what I mean. When we start to ruminate and spin our default mode network, in our brain takes over and it's really hard to rein it in, but that's exactly what we need to do. So my first invitation to you is to think about what grounds you when you're in that place of spin. So grounding yourself means doing something that will bring your awareness out of your head and back into your body. That gives your brain a chance to switch into a more constructive thought process. And when we're in that headspace, we're back in the present moment and we're able to deal with what, whatever's happening around us. We're able to focus and concentrate and get things done. So the next time you feel yourself unraveling, before you try to think or reason yourself out of an emotional response, take a moment to ground. Here's some examples of what I do to ground when I'm starting to freak out or panic or just get stuck in my own head. I do 10 rounds of box breathing. That's inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four, repeat 10 times. You will feel like a different person after you do that for 10 rounds. Same thing with alternate nostril breathing, where you hold one nostril closed, breathe in, and then open that nostril, breathe out, 
and then hold the other side of the nostril, breathe in, repeat. So you're just breathing through alternate nostrils. Another thing I love to do is tapping. That's basically tapping on meridian points, usually around my collarbone or on my face, depending on who's looking at me. And that also brings my nervous system back into regulation. Going out for a walk and just processing whatever's going on in your head, rolling out a yoga mat if you can, or just call a friend and vent and freak out. But make sure that you're calling the friend that will calm you down and not the friend who's going to make you freak out even more. Now, once you get into this space where you can invite logic and reason back into your thought process, start to pay attention to your thoughts. Bonus points if you can write them down and ask yourself if the story you're telling yourself is true or not. Is it a fact that you are too stupid to do fractions or is it that you haven't learned how to do fractions because they're boring and therefore you have not paid attention to it? Is it a fact that you're a screw up because your taxes are late and you haven't started doing them? Or is it true that doing your taxes is something that would take a lot of cognitive energy for you because you find it incredibly boring? So what you need to do is just gather up all those pieces of paper and send them off to somebody who can do your taxes. And we call that the ADHD tax when we can't possibly do something for ourselves. So we need to hire it out. And that's expensive, but so is paying those late fees on your taxes. So when we get to this point where we can look at the negative thoughts in our head, and we can actually take a moment to think about them. I also love using Byron Katie's model. It's called the work and is basically taking a thought and asking yourself, is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? How do you react when you believe that that thought is true? And who would you be without that thought? So if you're thinking to yourself, I'm such a screw up and I don't remember to do anything, then you would have to ask yourself, is that true? And it's probably not. And then asking yourself, how do you react when you believe that thought? So when you think you're a complete F up, then you start behaving like that because you give yourself permission to be a screw up by believing that thought first and then your behaviors follow. And who would you be without that thought? So if you didn't think you were a screw up, what would you do? You would actually have to come up with a solution to get around the problem that you're facing rather than just lambasting yourself over and over again about how much of a screw up you are. So the key here is to reframe the situation and focus on the facts because you are capable of achieving great things and living a fulfilling life, but you've got to get really specific about what matters, what you're willing to put your attention and energy into, what interests you, and making sure that the things that you don't have interest for are being taken care of in some other way. Another technique that has really helped me is reframing the meaning behind a thought. So instead of focusing on negative aspects of a situation, try to find either the neutral or the positive. A perfect example is my own anxiety, which can sometimes honestly be very crippling. But my anxiety is also the reason why I've been able to cope so well with my ADHD all of these years. Because of people-pleasing and anxiety, it tends to balance out that inner inattentive who would never show up for anything on time if given the opportunity to do exactly what she wants. But because I have so much anxiety and I hate disappointing people, I am never late. I rarely forget to return phone calls and emails and things like that because I don't want to let anybody down. So with that reframe, I find it a lot less emotionally overwhelming to deal with my ADHD and my anxiety because they complement each other. And the one other approach that I want to share is self-compassion. This means treating yourself with the same kindness, understanding, and support that you would offer to a dear friend. 
It means accepting yourself as you are, flaws and all, like me with my grammar issues, and my fractions issues, and a whole host of other issues. So self-compassion can really help you feel more resilient and confident and capable of dealing with all of these life challenges. So as I wrap up today, I just want to say that it's important to remember that you're not alone. Millions of us with ADHD struggle with negative self-talk and self-doubt and imposter syndrome and all of those things. But there's also millions of us who have learned to thrive with ADHD and who have found ways to harness their unique strengths and talents by connecting them to their interests and what matters to them. So I encourage you to take the time to understand that. I've got a ton of assessments on my website under tools and resources that you can start exploring. What are my strengths? What are my interests? What are my needs? What are my values? And from there, you can understand what's important and what's not important. And once you know what's not important to you, you can let go of all that self-flagellation you have around what's not important to you because it doesn't matter anyway. So on that note, guys, I'm going to wrap it up here. I hope today was helpful. I really appreciate you being here. I appreciate you listening. And I appreciate all of the great feedback. Come hang out with me on Instagram. I just find me on my name, Karen McGill, or on YouTube, same name. And until next week, guys, have a great one. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. For links and resources for this podcast, please visit itsadhdfriendly.com or click the link in the show description. Please also be sure to subscribe so you get automatic updates when new shows are posted. And of course, please do leave us an ADHD-friendly review. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.